This morning, we will be in Matthew chapter 2, specifically verses 10 through 11, but I will confess and say that we will really be looking at verses 1 through 12. And so if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, you can turn around and grab one in the backs of your seat. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, specifically verses 10 and 11, but we're going to look at the whole context. And if you have, I just want to say this real quick, if you have any prayer requests, if you have anything, any comments, any concerns, anything, we do have connection cards in the back seat. Please go ahead and fill one out. And, and those who are watching online, as, as Sharice and I were in quarantine, um, you, I just want to say that if, if you at all are struggling and you just want to talk, um, please go ahead and reach out to the church and we can set up a, a phone call. And I'd be more than willing to, to talk, read through scripture and, and pray. Um, so I just want to make that known. That's also anybody here too, okay? <laughs> That's not just specifically. But um, what was interesting is this past week, uh, there was a, a study that came out and said that those who are attending uh, worship um, services of any sort um, emotionally are actually doing a bit better than those who have been isolating themselves. And I know that it's probably been hard for a lot of you. And so... If that is you and you just want to have a phone call and talk and pray and read scripture, please reach out. One of the elders will, will reach out and we'll talk. So, with that being said, we're in Matthew. The reason why we're in Matthew is we're looking specifically at joy this week. This week marks the final week of Advent. And if you want a great explanation on what Advent is, I would encourage you, go back two weeks Jonathan had, he started his message out with maybe a three-minute, this is what Advent is. This is why it's important. Although it may seem a little liturgical or traditional, this is why it's important in the church calendar. He gives a great short explanation of it. Go back two weeks to his message on peace, and I'm telling you it's fantastic. What Advent is is it's a specific time of the year, of the church calendar year, where we focus on the arrival of Jesus Christ, on the arrival that God says, I am sending my son to come and dwell with people to save them from their sins. And the reason why we think about this is because we as humans forget. We're forgetful human beings. We tend to speed up our lives so much that we forget some of the most important things about why we worship God. And that's he came to dwell among his people. And so our hope was, and, and my hope is, that with this last Sunday of Advent, that what we were able to do here is just to help you slow down, help all of us slow down a bit and remember that the holiday season this season of life isn't for presents, it's not for toys, it's not for family gatherings, it's not for any of that stuff, although those are great things. It's to meditate the fact that Jesus came, the prophecies fulfilled. 
And so what we're going to be looking at today is how the arrival of Jesus, how the advent of Jesus produces joy in a person's life. And so what I'm going to do for us this morning is I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read our verses, I'm going to pray for us, and then let's go ahead and dive into the passage. So starting in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only you can soften hard hearts. Only you can comfort the weary and burdened child. And so, please, this morning, give us ears to hear. Allow our hearts to be moved with greater joy. God, if there are those in here whose hearts are hard, they're stones, would you be gracious to them today? And would you bring salvation? If there are those in here who are just weary and trying to get through another day, would you bring hope? If there are those who are settling, who are living unrepented, disobedient lives, would you bring conviction? Would your Holy Spirit stir us this morning to greater love and affection for your son Jesus and deeper obedience to your word? I do pray this in his name. Amen. So I have just one simple question for us this morning. <clears throat> do you want joy? Now, <laughs> I could be wrong here. I could be totally wrong here, but I believe that all of us, to some degree or another, could use a little bit more joy in our lives. If anything, 2020 has seemed to be like a vortex that's just sucked joy out of people's lives. I could be wrong. Maybe some of you really love 2020, or you love just the animosity that is going on in this world. Maybe that's how you, you thrive and you're just super strange. But I'll tell you what, I am not like that. <laughs> I'm not like that at all. And so the question as I was preparing for this message that kept on coming to my mind is, Max, do you want more joy or less? And I couldn't help but just say, I want more. I don't want less joy, I want more joy. But here's the thing, as I started thinking through, okay, what does that look like? I couldn't help but be confronted with this past year. Do you know why this past year's been harder on most of us than it probably should have been? It's because 
unknowingly, what we do as sinful humans who still struggle with indwelling sin is we say, I will find my joy here on earth. And what have we noticed this past year? That a microscopic disease, microscopic killer disease, can cause confusion, panic, and chaos. Jobs can be lost. We see quickly that fellowship or gathering together, whether it's with children or parents or friends, is such an important thing when it comes to living your life. All of those things in a matter of moments can be stripped away from you. And what sets in? Depression, fear, anxiety, worry, stress. Okay, now some of you may be thinking, Max, this is, this is supposed to be a sermon on joy. <laughs> You're coming out the, the gates hot. It's been, it's been a couple of weeks, so forgive me. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and so some of you might be a little angry or offended at what I'm saying right now. Max, how dare you? I've lost loved ones. I haven't seen my grandkids all year. Can you just give me a little bit of room to breathe and be angry? Please hear me say as I start this message, I'm not saying to not mourn with those who are mourning. Or just put on this fake, cheesy smile, ah, everything's going to be okay. And we're going to address what it looks like to be joyful in the midst of mourning. But right now, First, I want to confront that maybe, just maybe, one of the blessings that God is doing in the midst of this whole crazy year is revealing that we have been putting our joy in things other than Him. Now hear me say this. Scripture says in Proverbs, rejoice in the wife of your youth. We're called to rejoice in family. Paul says, complete my, my joy. We are called to have joy in fellowship. There's even, in uh, Deuteronomy, there's a call to have joy in feasts. But here's the problem is that we as sinful creatures take what God has created and we say, this is where my ultimate joy and satisfaction will come from. This is where my pleasure will come from. And we keep God at an arm's length thinking, well, he can't really actually bring me this joy that I get here on earth because I just, I can't see him, I don't feel him, none of those things. And I would argue a little bit, that's where maybe the Catholic roots of this area have crept in a little bit. And I would also argue that culturally speaking, we're a very stoic people here in the North. We love to put our heads down and just get through the day. And so here's the problem. Here's the problem with us, really. 
So I'm going to make this bold assertion that we far too easily are pleased by things here on earth that expire. We are far too easily pleased with things here on earth when we have been called into a relationship that is promised a joy that surpasses all understanding or comprehension. I mean, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? That means that there's no possible way that you could produce joy if it is a fruit of the Spirit on your own. And so this is what the advent of Jesus brings. The advent of Jesus brings joy because the advent of Jesus brings salvation to the nations. And so the first question that we have to ask as we are trying to understand what joy is, is we need to then understand, okay, if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, if it's produced by the Spirit, then biblically speaking, what is joy? A brief definition that I would give that joy is a right state with God which brings a soul-moving emotion. I said the E word, deal with it. Emotion in him that causes you to worship him. I'm going to say it one more time for those who want to write it down. Joy is a right state with God which brings a soul-moving emotion in him that causes you to worship him. Okay, so what I'm going to do first here is just unpack that a little bit. There's two ways that people view joy mostly. You have one view that says joy is just an emotion. It's just a pleasure. In fact, the, 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 Oxford, the new Oxford Dictionary says that joy is a deep pleasure. Deep pleasure. That's what joy is. And what we see normally in the world is that's how joy is talked about. My kids bring me joy. My work brings me joy. My, my lake house brings me joy. But then on the other side, what the church tends to do or views joy as is merely just a state. It's just a position. So I don't feel anything. I'm just stoic. But I've got joy in the Lord because he saved me. And so then we say it like, yeah, Jesus has saved me from my sins. And so we have these two competing sides. But I just want to suggest that I don't think it's an either or. It has to be a both and. It is an emotion. But it's an emotion because of the position. The position leads you to a deep soul-moving emotion. Where do we see this? Well, we see, first off, that maybe, maybe if, if you're in the camp of, oh, okay, emotions, Max, you're talking about emotions. Well, we first need to understand that God created the body, the soul, and the mind. He created it all, and when he created it all, did he not create it perfectly? Okay, so if God created us as his image bearers perfectly, then that means he created us with perfect emotions that never waver, that never fault. And we see this, I believe the best example is, is when God told Adam, find a helper, he looks at everything, names them, 
from the microscopic uh, flea to the largest, giganticest killer or blue or whatever whale in the ocean, or giant squid, I heard those are a thing. And he looked at every single animal, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals, and did not find a single helper suitable for him. And so what, what does God do? He, he causes them to fall asleep, takes out his rib, rib, creates woman. And as Adam sees her, he says, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Thanks, God. No, he says, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he worships and praises God. But then is it not a few Verses or just one chapter later that we see everything gets jacked up. As Adam and Eve are tempted. Let me use this illustration for us. God tells Adam and Eve, you can have anything and everything in the garden in abundance. It would be as if you go into your favorite store and the owner of the store says, look, I want you to have anything and everything in abundance. Just this one thing I don't want you to, to take. Just one thing. Other than that, everything else is yours. Enjoy it. Have it in abundance. It's never going to run out. What does Adam and Eve do? Well, they take that one thing that they were asked not to take. And it fractures their position and their state with their good and gracious creator. And what is the very first thing that we see happen to them? They feel things that they had never felt in their lives. They felt something that we were never created to feel. Shame. Guilt. Embarrassment. And from this point on, because sin enters the world and literally destroys everything, including emotions, we see that emotions are no longer reliable. But here's the promise that we're given. Is that although sin has now fractured our relationships, sin has fractured our health, sin has fractured our emotions, sin has fractured it all, God, out of his kindness, still promises an offspring. An offspring who would make all things right. And so now we live in this tension of being able to have joy in a very proper and real way that is earth-shaking, that totally, let me just say this, biblical joy transforms the way that you look at life and that you experience life. But biblical joy only comes from a right position or a right state or a re right relation with God. And as I said earlier, we have this tension of dividing the two. 
saying it's just an emotion or it's just a state or a position. And where do we see this in this passage? This, this passage is, shows us, I believe, really clearly what this tension looks like. We, we read in verse 1 that Jesus, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the wise men came to King Herod and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now let me stop there. Because we could look and analyze King Herod's life and say, if we were looking at joy as just an emotion or, or this deep sense of pleasure of, of what you get out of things, that King Herod, by all means, could have had, he could have been the most joyful person in Jerusalem. He had everything at his fingertips. He had the money, he had the power, he had position, he had food, he had all of the women that he could have possibly have wanted. He could tell people, go and do this and they would do that, or bring me this and they would bring them that. There wasn't many people above him. And so we could say that, that Herod could have this deep sense of joy or deep sense of pleasure from all of the things that he could have gotten from this world. But let's read on, because the strangest thing happens. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Herod was troubled by a little baby. By a little baby that was born, in a matter of moments, this joy that this world brought to Herod was completely stripped from him because wise men came up to him and said, where is this baby, this infant, the king of the Jews? And if you don't know the story, let me just give you a, a brief uh, understanding of the story, is that Herod is so troubled that he sends guards to Bethlehem to murder all of the children two and under. That's sick. Because his power because his power is being tried, he says, I need to do something about this king of the Jews. And so we see how quickly the pleasure of this world can be taken from our fingertips. Because the power that Herod even had had a time limit. It would expire. Do you realize that? That everything in this world that you own has a time limit. It expires. It will come and it will go. People. Places. Things in your life, they all have expiration dates. I mean, don't we see this so clearly with, with, with the latest technology? I mean, seriously, we're on the iPhone 17, I think. And the 18, I think, is coming out in a month. I, I mean, it's, it just comes and it goes. And so we can't find pleasure, we can't find joy ultimately in this world because in a matter of moments, 
It could be taken. I mean, none of us are exempt from getting a phone call in five minutes that will rock our world. But here's the thing, because in this passage, we also see what it looks like to just put our joy in this state, in this position. Because what does King Herod do next? King Herod is trouble, so what he does is he says, I'll get the religious people. I'll ask them where this king of the Jews will be born. And so when we continue reading on, and he assembling all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, uh, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall come, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, I don't know if this is what comes to your mind when you're thinking about this, but isn't it amazing? Here Herod had to have said something to them. Hey, these wise men just came up to me and said that there's the king of the Jews. Where, where is this king supposed to be born? And the chief priests and the religious leaders of the day say, this is where? Bethlehem. But do you know what's amazing? Is that not one of them we ever read at all travels to Bethlehem because not one of them is moved or curious about what Herod is saying here. They're not moved at all to go and check out that the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, had finally come. It doesn't move them at all. They're treating this just as an academic theological exercise. And when we look at joy as just a state or a position with God, that's how we tend to treat God, as just a theological academic exercise of the mind. It never moves us to worship him. We, we so easily say, hey, I, I know that gospel stuff. I, I, I know that theological stuff. What, give me something a little bit more meatier and, and deeper. Yeah, yeah, okay, I know Jesus has saved me from my sins. I know that I'm a sinner. I know all of that stuff, but I want something a little bit deeper, so let's go ahead and, and talk about this deeper thing. What's, well, I mean, seriously, what's more deeper than the gospel? And yet here we see the religious leaders I'm assuming most of us in here are religious in some type of way, and they are not moved at all at what Herod is saying. And so we see that we can't just acknowledge or say that, that joy is a position. Because when we just religiously or legalistically follow Jesus like the, the chief priests here had been doing, we can see so clearly that there's not actually joy in them. And so we have people on the one end that are constantly chasing joy and pleasure and always finding out that it leaves them. And on the other hand, we're seeing people that never are. 
And so we have to say that joy is our right relation with God that leads to our emotions being stirred. I mean, let's, let's look at it. When Israel is freed from slavery from Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, do you know what the first thing is that they do? Because of their right relationship with God that led them out, they dance, they sing, they have tambourines going. I've never seen somebody play tambourine unemotionally. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. What about David? Did David not get chastised one time for dancing around in the temple naked because he was so full of emotion and joy because of his standing with God? We see the, the apostle Paul. I mean, you can't read Philippians without seeing that there was just something different with him. I mean, the joy that he had. Okay, you're going to lock me up. I'll convert your guards. Okay, you want to kill me? Well, to die is gain. I'm going to be poor? Well, that's okay. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. This is a type of joy that's not natural to human beings. And yet, this is the type of joy that we are promised. And what we tend to do is settle for either just the pleasure-chasing emotions of it or just by saying, oh, it's just a state, so I'm never going to feel. And yet, our right status with God informs our emotions. And it stirs us. How does it stir us? Well, like I said, we're going to be primarily in verses 10 and 11, but we're going through, through all of it. And so let's look at verses 10 and 11 now. How does our right state inform our emotions? Let's look at this incredible passage. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is incredible. Do you know why this passage is so in incredible? I had never noticed this in my entire life until Sharice and I recently, we've been going through an Advent devotional. We, we read it before we go to bed every night. And the chapter was on these three guys. Who are these three guys? Who are they? They're the wise men. It's such a clean way to call, to call them. They're the three wise men. They're the three kings, right? Well, actually, do you know what they are? They're astrologers. Do you know what astrologers were in biblical times? They were magis. Do you know what magis are? Magicians. So right here, we have Harry Potter, Ron Weasley, and Hermione Granger. <laughs> These are magicians. These are sorcerers. Do you know what the Old Testament says to do with sorcerers or magicians? Stone them. Kill them. They are demonic. Satanic. And yet, I mean, think about it. And yet, these three magicians go to Herod and say, we saw a star come up where is the king of the Jews? 
And these three magicians go to Bethlehem. They travel to Bethlehem. And when they see the star over, they rejoice greatly. Their hearts were full of joy. Magicians! The worst of sinners that you could possibly think of come to baby Jesus, the king of the Jews, and they're rejoicing, their joy led them into the house and they fell down and worshipped him. Why did they rejoice greatly? Why did they fall down and worship this tiny baby? Because salvation had come to the three of them. They had realized this is the king of the Jews. Magicians acknowledged that. Magicians, the worst of sinners. I mean, does this not inform us the ministry that Jesus has come? Jesus has come for the most unlikely sinners that you could possibly think of. And they rejoiced greatly because salvation came to them. Whereas these three magicians go to Herod and say, where is the king of the Jews? Herod plots the death of this baby and does it unsuccessfully, but there would be a group who would not do it unsuccessfully the chief priests and Pharisees and scribes, 33 years later, would successfully murder this man. And do you know what would be hanging above this man's head? In mockery, here is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Because the magicians had received salvation, because of the promise that God had given Abraham that through you an offspring would come to be a blessing to the nations, these three men were able to receive salvation. Our joy is to be in the Lord because only the Lord can save us. You and I, these magicians, they were enemies of God. Enemies. Promised the wrath and judgment of God. And yet God in his steadfast love and mercy comes to dwell with us. And so this is what I'm pleading for today is do not put your joy in things that will expire. Jesus Christ will never, ever expire. He does not fade. He does not rot. He's from everlasting and to everlasting. And when you put your joy in him, when you put your pleasure in him, you better believe it that he will return the results. Now here's the thing, and this is, I just want to take some time to say this, and then I'm going to conclude, is that some of you are in deep states of pain and mourning.
we, we, we settle. I, I will stand firm by that. We settle for, for little glimpses of joy. And we have to fight. We have to fight for joy. And if you are at a, a moment in your life where it is just pain after pain, trouble after trouble, loss after loss, and you may be thinking, Max, how in the world can I rejoice and find joy right now? We have to fight to remind ourselves Jesus came and suffered. He suffered everything. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our deepest pains and agonies. He's sympathizing with you right now because he knows the pain and suffering you are going through. This is the paradox of joy, is that even in your deepest suffering and pain, you are still able to find pleasure in Jesus because he can relate to you. Your pain doesn't send him away. It actually causes him to draw nearer to you. And so continue to fight. Continue to plead. And I just have some very practical points of application for us all. So how do I grow in joy? How do I fight for this joy? How do I fight against either the idols that I'm putting my joy or my pleasure in or the lack of emotions that I'm feeling for Jesus because of this great salvation that has come to me? Well, first, pray. We far too often do not go to the Lord in prayer. Pray. Pray earnestly. Pray day, pray night, pray at lunch. Set a reminder in your phone. Pray. Pray for deeper joy. Don't be easily pleased. So first, pray. Second, read and meditate on God's word. Let, let God's word, it's active, it's living. It's not dead. It's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts through bone and marrow. God's word will pierce your hearts if you take time to read it and meditate on it. It will be a source of joy. It will bring you life. Take sticky notes. Write verses. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it, in, put it on your cereal. Put it in your car. Write it above your doorposts. Read and meditate on God's word. Fight for this joy. Uh, thirdly, fellowship with one another. Paul says, complete my joy. When we are in fellowship with one another, we are able to be a mutual encouragement to one another. We are able to pray for one another. We are able to lock arms and march forward with one another. But when we isolate ourselves, we leave so many rooms for fiery arrows to come in and pierce us. We were not created to live the Christian life on our own. Fellowship with one another. Fight for joy. And lastly, give. You want to be more joyful? Give. 
You want to fight for joy, give. Give of your time, your resources, and your wisdom. Don't hold that back, but give. We see this so clearly with the three wise men. What did they do? They worshiped and they gave right away. They were so full of joy that they worshiped God and gave. And we see Jesus Christ being one of the most joyful men in all of history, did the most amazing thing. He gave his life for us as a free gift. And so give. If you want to fight for joy, like these three magicians, pray, read, and meditate on God's word, fellowship with one another, and give. You know what makes me so excited and why I get so animated about joy? It's because God has created us to be joyful people. God has created us to find pleasure in him. And he hasn't said, I just want you to have a little bit of it. No, he wants us to have an abundance of joy. So can we just fight for joy this year? Can we commit to that? All right, let's pray. Father, I will confess, I settle for joy. I would rather be more excited and animated about a sports team or about something that my child does or a gift that I receive or um, praise and, and accolation. Uh, um, forgive me. Forgive us as a body for being so quick to, to grumble and so slow to find our joy in you. And so I pray just pray and ask that, like Paul, that we would take his command series, that we would rejoice in the Lord always. And that we would set our mind on things above. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the great salvation that we've received through Jesus. Let that be our source of joy that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are outside of them, outside of Christ can find that salvation, that joy by repenting of their sins. I pray this in his name, Emmanuel.